This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What does it take to build an empire? Years ago, you had to have like spears and phalanxes. It was a whole to do. But what does it take in 2020? Jeff Bezos has built a, a, an exquisite machine for consolidating power and ultimately consolidating wealth. More and more, the economy is running through Amazon, and, and every bit of it that moves through Amazon, there is a tax that's levied. And this is how Bezos has become the richest man in the world. Yeah, richest man in the world. In 2020, he became the first person to ever have $200 billion dollars. I literally had to rewrite this line because of how fast Bezos is amassing wealth. And if it continues to grow at the same rate, he'll be a trillionaire by 2026. Amazon, in just a few years, went from selling a copy of Douglas Hofstadter's fluid concepts and creative analogies, computer models of the fundamental mechanisms of thought, to selling everything and owning the very infrastructure on which everything is sold. Bezos' empire serves almost half of all internet purchases in the United States. More people go to Amazon to begin their search for a product than Google. And even if you don't knowingly use Amazon, you're almost definitely interacting with them. They basically own the internet through Amazon Web Services, or AWS, which represents half of all cloud computing, including for the CIA. And it's all in the hands of one guy from Albuquerque. So, who is Jeff Bezos? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at those who have it. In 1999, Wired magazine published a profile of Jeff Bezos, five years into the existence of Amazon. The self-proclaimed world's largest bookstore was expanding into other products. The magazine wrote on what Bezos thought shopping would look like in the far, far future. The year 2020. The vast bulk of store-bought goods, food staples, paper products, cleaning supplies, and the like, you will order electronically. Some physical storefronts will survive, but they'll have to offer at least one of two things. Entertainment value or immediate convenience. It's 2020, and that's largely what happened. To see how it got that way, we have to go to the gripping world of 1960s Albuquerque unicyclists. In the early 1960s, Ted Jorgensen, a circus performer, one of the best unicyclists in Albuquerque, met a girl, Jacqueline Geis. When Jacqueline was 17, they had a son, Jeffrey Preston Jorgensen. A few years later, Ted and Jacqueline divorced. Ted went back into the Albuquerque circus world, and Jacqueline moved on. She met a Cuban immigrant, Miguel, an engineer. Miguel adopted Jeffrey and gave him his name, Bezos. Just a few years ago, a Bezos biographer found Ted, Jeff's biological father, running the bike shop he owned. Ted had no idea his son had gone on to become the richest man in the world. Bezos spent his childhood and teen years in Texas and Florida. In high school, Bezos revealed his one-day aspirations. 
to go to space. His high school girlfriend told the Miami Herald, Jeff always wanted to make a lot of money. It wasn't about money itself. It was about what he was going to do with the money, about changing the future. And she even got more specific. The reason he's earning so much money is to get to outer space. Yeah, space. He graduated from his Miami high school as valedictorian, and his speech was about the need to colonize space. He told the Miami Herald, who was interviewing a high school valedictorian for some reason, he wanted to guide humanity to, quote, build space hotels, amusement parks, yachts, and colonies for two or three million people orbiting around the Earth. Bezos hasn't been to space yet, but for college, it was the next best thing. New Jersey, Princeton. He graduated in 1986, majoring in electrical engineering and computer science. He saw an ad in the Princeton newspaper looking for the year's best computer science graduates. It was a startup that used the early internet for some financial thing I don't understand. Then he went to Bankers Trust to work on more financial technology. He briefly worked on a startup that did news by fax for financial firms. Bezos told Wired that he didn't want to work in finance. He wanted to work in computers and automation. He worked with a headhunter, someone who helps companies find employees to find a job, and eventually did land in finance, but at a firm that caught his interest, D.E. Shaw. From then on, I started working sort of at the intersection of computers and finance um, and stayed on Wall Street for a long time, ultimately worked for a company that um, did this thing called quantitative hedge fund trading. Um, so we were, we, what we did is we programmed the computers and then the computers made stock trades. At Shaw, Bezos saw a piece of data that in 1993 was mind-blowing. Use of something called the web was up 2,300%. He'd never seen something blow up like that, that quickly. It was an entire new world and an entire new customer base. Like early Catholics realizing they could just sell indulgences. D.E. Shaw was also where Bezos met Mackenzie Scott, who would become Mrs. Bezos. Scott also went to Princeton, where she was mentored by Toni Morrison, who said Mackenzie was one of the best students I've ever had in my creative writing classes. Really, one of the best. After college, Scott was a writer, novels, literary fiction, and applied for a day job at D.E. Shaw, where Jeff interviewed her. She got the job and told Vogue, quote, my office door was next to his, and all day long, I listened to that fabulous laugh. How could you not fall in love with that laugh? Well, that's actually something I should have mentioned, but I used a large portion of my elementary school uh, uh, free time hours not only watching Star Trek, <laughs> the original, of course, um, but also playing Star Trek. They got married and landed a nice apartment on Manhattan's Upper West Side, the comfortably wealthy neighborhood adjacent Central Park. But Jeff couldn't ignore that bit of data about internet use. Up 2,300%. He decided to start a company. You know, I'd already talked to my wife about this, and she was very supportive and said, look, you know, uh, you can count me in 100%. Um, whatever you want to do. You know, it's true. She had married this kind of, you know, fairly stable guy in a stable career path, and now he wanted to go do this crazy thing, but she was 100% supportive. The Bezoses quit their jobs at D.E. Shaw. David Shaw, the head of the firm himself, took two hours to try and convince Jeff to stay, but it didn't work. They packed up their New York apartment and drove across the country to the city Bezos would one day dominate, Seattle. 
Mackenzie drove while Jeff wrote a business plan and called investors from a car phone, I guess. He knew he wanted to start an online store, but wasn't even sure what he wanted to sell yet. Here he is in 1997. And I picked books as the first best product to sell online, which are making a list of like 20 different products that you might be able to sell. And books were great as the first best, because books are incredibly unusual in one respect, and that is that there are more items in the book category than there are items in any other category by far. The Bezoses landed in Seattle in 1993 and incorporated the company in 1994, just across the lake from where Kurt Cobain committed suicide just months earlier. Coincidence? Probably. Jeff Bezos famously started the company in his garage, but not without some help. A $300,000 investment from his parents. This was their life savings at the time. It was a big deal. But it wasn't just mom and dad investing. Bezos has a gift for selling investors on his vision, and he's displayed it all the way along. And he has essentially said to them from the very beginning, he has communicated that this is a long-term strategy and we are going to not deliver returns. We're going to lose money initially uh, for quite a number of years because I'm going to lose money to gain market share. And in the long run, that's going to yield monopoly-level profits for you down the road. That's Stacy Mitchell, the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, who you heard at the top of the episode. Amazon's original name was Kadabra like half of what you say when you do a magic trick. But after a lawyer misheard it as cadaver, Jeff noticed the name's fatal flaw. No one likes to think about corpses when they're buying books. Jeff and Mackenzie also considered the simple but effective Relentless, a domain name Amazon still owns. Try it, relentless.com. But they eventually settled on Amazon. Back then, internet search results were actually alphabetized, like a paper phone book rather than algorithmically served. So the A name helped. And it also evoked the scale of the giant river in South America. At the time, the internet was exciting, and so was ordering things online, rather than the dystopic mundanity it is today. Amazon.com gives such great discounts that even with the shipping, you come out ahead. I like not standing in line. Instead of standing in line, I just sit here and punch one button, and my book's on the way. I found a whole range of books uh, from fiction to nonfiction on contemporary American politics and just had a, an absolutely great time. Yeah, and it was also cheaper. I first started looking at Amazon way back in the early 2000s when it was beginning to really grow in the retail sector, in part by exploiting its uh, sort of loophole, if you will, in sales taxes that enabled it to sell across the country and didn't have to collect sales tax in most states, which was a pretty uh, extreme advantage uh, at that time. Even local retailers, chain retailers, they could be selling online, but because they had a physical presence, they had to collect the sales tax. And so 6 to 10% price advantage to Amazon as a result. So that's when I first started noticing them and sort of hearing from independent businesses about, about this and this kind of uneven playing field. Think about how you behave when you shop around. Getting a little chunk off the price of a $15 book is a big deal. From the very beginning, he had this strategy to win kind of government advantages and subsidies that his competitors didn't have access to. And so there was something about that sales tax issue that clued me into sort of the ambitions, if you will, of Amazon and, and particularly the way Bezos was approaching what he was trying to do. 
by not having sales tax, customers were automatically getting a 5 to 8% discount from Amazon, in addition to the already low prices from not needing brick-and-mortar stores. Amazon sold books way cheaper than the bookstores could afford to, but also way cheaper than Amazon could afford to. Bezos had investors along for the ride. So while Amazon sold books at a loss they could afford in the long run, bookstores were forced to compete in a way that they couldn't afford. Amazon lost about $3 billion in its first six years in business selling books at a loss. And the result was that countless bookstores went under. Amazon quickly came to dominate the market, quickly had an incredible power to leverage over publishers to get what it wanted. And then it owned the industry. And then it has systematically pursued that exact same approach in one sector after another, go into a new market, monitor what people are doing, learn from them, master the market, lose tons of money, and gain that market. One sector after another. By 1998, Amazon was the third largest bookseller in the world, having forever rocked publishing and book retailing. But again, like Stacey Mitchell said, books were just the first step. I think all along his intention was not to build a bookstore uh, or even a retailer. He saw early on the opportunity to create something like a utility, to create infrastructure. And, um, and by doing so, you could be the gatekeeper. He saw the internet as this opportunity to sort of essentially build kind of the infrastructure for e-commerce and thereby become the gatekeeper for the flow of goods and services online. That vision was there all along. He chose books initially because that was the easy entry point to get into retail, but always with the intention of expanding into an everything store and being this kind of utility that other companies would need to use and therefore would be dependent on and vulnerable to Amazon's power. Today, we think of Amazon as the place to buy everything. But building that machine would take decades, decades of operating at a loss, which investors were happy to finance because they believed in Bezos's vision. And they were right to believe in Bezos's long-term vision because Bezos so far has been able to deliver. What makes it all possible is data, something that Andreas Weigand has called the, quote, oil of the 21st century. Jeff deeply understands the importance of experiments, the importance of the scientific method. Everything you see on the site is a result of an experiment. Dr. Andreas Weigand, a data scientist who went on to be chief scientist at Amazon, first met Bezos in New York at an Illuminati event, or, I mean, NYU data science conference. Jeff actually knew about me, I believe, through D.E. Shaw. Jeff used to work for David Shaw, and in 99, I organized a conference at NYU, where I was full-time faculty at the time, called Computational Finance, where David Shaw was our guest speaker. And David Shaw really revolutionized Wall Street by making it a data business. So Jeff, of course, was working at D.E. Shaw and fully in that mindset of using data. So I think seeing the opportunity of making retail, similarly, a data-driven business that, I think, was what we discussed. And now I remember, actually, uh, what I uh, told Jeff in that meeting was the reason I would work at Amazon is that it's the largest lab in the world. 
So if you are interested in doing experiments, then there was no better place of doing it at the time than Amazon.com. The largest lab in the world. You see, Bezos noticed that use of this internet thing was up 2,300%. It's not hard to imagine what Bezos himself might have thought. What's something people might do on the internet? Buy stuff. Over the years, I've met quite a few uh, startups that claim to do certain things better than Amazon. I've met companies in China that say, oh, we are like you know, the Amazon of China. And indeed, they might just look like Amazon from the front page. But the huge difference is what is going on under the hood. And you might just copy Amazon, you know, because everything you see is a result of lots of experiments and probably the best, you know, that can be done. But uh, what ultimately drives is, is the underlying data. And it's all about the data. Let's take recommendations as an example. We all know and we all probably spent more money than we wanted to on items that were recommended to us by Amazon. So it's easy to make recommendations. It is hard to evaluate recommendations. Because, for example, do you want to just make a quick buck right now and pushing stuff to people they will regret later? Or are you in it for the long term? Amazon's recommendation engine was already tracking its customers as early as 1999, and people were noticing, like in this 60 Minutes interview with Bezos. Now, every time I use your website, you learn more about me. Yes. One of your employees has said that you collect half a gigabyte, whatever that is, of information on your customers every day. That's about 350 floppy disks worth. Mm. What do you do with that information? That's the data that allows us to predict or try to predict what, you know, uh, what books and videos and music that you would like that you don't that you haven't discovered yet. Half a gigabyte, whatever that is. And it's not just like what you search or buy. They're watching everything. Here's Stacy Mitchell. They're monitoring you when you're on their site. They're not only looking at what you're clicking on, but how long is your mouse hovering over here? What did you search for that you found and bought? What did you search for that you didn't buy? How far down the page did you scroll? I mean, there's just reams and reams of data. And of course, they're also following you around on the web and they're increasingly uh, combining that data with data that they have about you offline, either that they've purchased or that they're getting through your activity at Whole Foods, for example. We aren't going to get into this here, but Amazon bought Whole Foods, the high-end grocery store chain, in 2017. Data, online and offline, also helps Amazon research their competitors. Within Amazon is a secretive division called Competitive Intelligence. This group analyzes competitors by simply buying large quantities of stuff from them to get an idea of prices, stock, shipping speeds. In 2009, Competitive Intelligence noticed something. Diapers. Diapers.com, owned by a company, Quidzy, founded by Vinit Bharara, brother of one-day infamous U.S. attorney, Preet Bharara. 
Diapers.com was doing a great job selling diapers and other baby stuff, like rattles or whatever those little weirdos like. Amazon approached Quidzy to sell. Quidzy said no. So Amazon dropped the prices on baby stuff by 30%. Quidzy noticed and did an experiment. They too changed their prices, only for Amazon to follow immediately. Amazon was tracking diapers.com prices and repricing accordingly. Quidzy executives analyzed the data and found that Amazon was set to lose $100 million in three months by cutting baby stuff prices. The price changes were too much for Quidzy to handle. They approached Bezos and met with him in 2010. Literally, while they were meeting, Amazon launched something called Amazon Mom, a version of Amazon Prime that gives mothers deep discounts. Quidzy sold to Amazon. Amazon executives claimed their baby supply plans were in place long before Quidzy was even on their radar. But much like a waddling baby's diaper, that seems like it's full of shit. A couple years later, Amazon shut down Quidzy and laid off 263 people. Over the years, through similar acquisitions, Amazon starts selling more and more stuff. They introduce features like one-click shopping, Amazon Prime, and, you know, all the stuff that you know and love about Amazon. It wasn't really until probably around 2010, 2012, they really started to grow. 2014, we started doing really in-depth research, tracking what they were doing and trying to sort of understand the company. We released a, a large report in 2016 called Amazon Stranglehold, which was one of the, I, I think, really the first analysis out there that looked at the nature of Amazon's power and, and what the company really was. I'm going to read the beginning of the report, which came out in 2016. For all of its reach, Amazon, the company founded by Jeff Bezos in 1995 as an online bookstore, is still remarkably invisible. It makes it easy not to notice how powerful and wide-ranging it has become. But behind the packages on the doorstep and the inviting interface, Amazon has quietly positioned itself at the center of a growing share of our daily activities and transactions, extending its tentacles across our economy. And with it, our lives. Today, half of all U.S. households are subscribed to the membership program Amazon Prime. Half of all online shopping searches start directly on Amazon. And Amazon captures nearly one in every two dollars that Americans spend online. Amazon sells more books, toys, and by next year, apparel and consumer electronics than any retailer online or off, and is investing heavily in its grocery business. Its market power now rivals or exceeds that of Walmart, and it stands only to grow. Within five years, one-fifth of the U.S.'s $3.6 trillion retail market will have shifted online. And Amazon is on track to capture two-thirds of that share. End quote. That, to me, sounds a lot like monopoly. Which, if I remember from social studies class, you're not supposed to do. More on monopolies after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. First of all, and this is important, I hate the game Monopoly. The winner of the game is usually decided in the first 10 minutes of playing, and then it's just a miserable hour of one person getting destroyed by the other, which isn't even fun if you're winning. There are no comebacks in Monopoly. 
It's miserable. And that's kind of the point of the game, which was originally built as a socialist satire of the capitalist system, but now sells on Amazon for $17.99. But what is a monopoly? Monopoly can be a sort of confusing word. Like a lot of people assume that a monopoly means there's only one company selling something because it has mono right in the name. And so it's easy to think that it means a company that has like 100% of a market and there's nobody else. But the way that the federal government and legal scholars define monopoly, they talk about monopoly power. And it means it's when a company has enough power within a market to substantially dictate the terms that other players in the market have to abide by. So when a company has the ability to, say, set prices, to raise prices, that's an example of monopoly power, but also when they have the ability to single-handedly hold down wages or cut prices that they're paying to suppliers when the companies that are supplying them don't have, are kind of at their mercy and don't have enough bargaining power, that's also a kind of monopoly power. So a company can achieve that level of power within an industry with a market share that is much lower than 100%. So Standard Oil, when we broke it up in 1911, if I'm remembering correctly, at that time it had about a market share of about 65%. But economists and people who study market power will tell you that a company can have the power to dictate terms and to really disrupt markets and, and ultimately exclude other businesses from competing with much, much smaller market share. In some cases, even 20% can be enough to have that sort of power. It really depends on the particular company and the industry. And based on all of that, is Amazon a monopoly? Does Amazon have a monopoly? Amazon has monopoly power. Uh, they uh, capture about half of all online shopping traffic. So when people want to buy something online, it used to be five, six, seven years ago, people would go to a search engine and they would type in running shoes or a particular book or whatever it is that they were looking for. And they would get a lot of different results. Those results would include Amazon, but they would include other companies. And because of the way that Amazon Prime sort of works, because of the psychology of Amazon Prime, what has started to happen is that Amazon is the place where people now start their shopping. And so more than half of, of, of the time, Americans, when they want to shop online, start right on Amazon. And what that means is that if you're a company that makes or sells anything where you want to reach consumers online, if you're not selling on Amazon, you are giving up access to more than half the market right out of the gate. Amazon also has wide-reaching power over the internet itself. Part of why Amazon has become so powerful and people have really sort of not fully recognized that power or are still kind of trying to grapple with it is because Amazon is all these different things. Amazon is a retail platform. They dominate online shopping. They capture half of all online shopping traffic. They also run AWS and power a huge part of the internet and are the, the infrastructure for lots of companies from Netflix to Condé Nast, the, the magazine publisher, and on and on. They manage data for the CIA. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to address that real quick. Amazon Web Services is that cloud computing subsidiary I mentioned earlier. In 2013, the CIA signed a $600 million contract with Amazon to run all of their cloud computing. Yes, that CIA. 
So not only was Amazon doing business with the investigative body that's undemocratically overthrown foreign governments for American profit for decades, but they also wrangled responsibility for storing and protecting all of the CIA's obviously very extensive and private data. If there's a JFK assassination answer or information about UFOs, Amazon has it. And sure, they've got all the stuff about overthrowing a government to keep down lithium prices or whatever. But back to what Stacey Mitchell was saying. Um, they are the dominant provider of voice interface through Alexa. As we move to a world in which our homes, our devices, our appliances, our cars, our hotel rooms, our offices are all going to be voice activated, voice ready uh, as, as, we inter as we interact with the internet more and more through voice. Um, Amazon is going to dominate that interface. And then there's just a host of other things they're doing on top of those major pieces. I mean, they're now, they've built a logistics and package delivery service that is rivaling FedEx and UPS in terms of the size and number of packages that they're delivering. They're a major producer of entertainment, movies and television shows. Uh, they're offering a satellite service where lease departments and uh, other entities can get real-time surveillance uh, of communities through satellites. I mean, and the list just goes on and on and on. And so one of the challenges with Amazon is it's difficult for people to kind of understand exactly what this company is and to hold sort of enough of it in view that they can understand what it's really all about. Monopoly power isn't new. It's like the monopolies of the old robber baron days when one guy or one corporation had all the oil or all the railroads or the newspapers. Except Amazon has control of everything and the very infrastructure of everything. What's different is that Amazon is the infrastructure for online commerce, the infrastructure for the cloud and all of the data and movement of information that, that is happening in the cloud. It is the infrastructure for voice. Um, so it is not just sort of one piece of infrastructure, but it's, it's all of this infrastructure knitted together and then combined with the nature of a kind of digital operation is that Amazon has a godlike view of everything that is happening across all of that infrastructure. And so it is able to see into its competitors' businesses, their activities, what's happening, their relationships with their customers, just with a complete godlike view of, of all of it. And that is really unprecedented in history. All of this has made Jeff Bezos an incredibly wealthy man. And what does he want to spend that money on? The only way that I can see to uh, deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings into space travel. I think it's an example of how just being rich doesn't mean you're going to be creative. In fact, if you have so much money, it's going to be an obstacle to genuine creativity and a five-year-old can think of better uses for the money, which is just a, another reminder that she should not have this money. That's Shama Sawant, a city councilwoman in Seattle's 3rd District, the first full-on socialist to hold office in Seattle in 100 years. The money that Jeff Bezos doesn't know what to do with, that money needs to be in the hands of working people in a democratic way so that together we can decide that no, Fuck this space travel. What we need is socialized medicine. We need to end hunger and malnutrition. We need to make sure that everybody has clean water, access to high-quality education, 
very clean, well-organized neighborhoods. We need world-class mass transit. We need massive investment into renewable energy to make sure that we once and for all end fossil fuel use and actually beat the climate clock that is ticking away so furiously. All of this can be done with the money that Jeff Bezos doesn't know what to do with. Seattle is really amazing. I have some close friends who live there and I visited for their wedding and such. It's, it's a breathtakingly gorgeous city. And, and you know, I'm sure people will think I'm biased because I live here, but it truly is, objectively speaking. And it's, it's, it's like a punch in the face to see that in such a beautiful locale, you have gut-wrenching poverty and homelessness. It is deeply unequal city. It's completely unacceptable. Sawant is an economist who first ran for office in 2013, and she's been a constant critic of Amazon from day one. If you're in the Seattle area, then uh, whether you're a socialist or not, if you are somebody who is becoming politically active, I think it's inevitable that you would think about Jeff Bezos and Amazon because Amazon has such a larger-than-life presence on Seattle's life, Seattle's politics, Seattle's economic realities. Remember my friends who live in Seattle? They live there because they work at Amazon. Councilmember Sawant was one of many progressives fighting for a $15 minimum wage. Seattle raised theirs to 15 and eventually Amazon gave in and raised the minimum to $15 company-wide. So Amazon's press release is not going to say, we are uh, uh, raising our minimum wage to $15 an hour because we have sh- been shamed into doing this by courageous social movements led by socialists in Seattle (laughs) because for them it's important to control the narrative as well. And the reason it's important for them is not only because they want to maintain ideological primacy over the working class, but it's, it's more than that. It's because they are specifically afraid of the contagion of working class confidence spreading from city after city, which is why they will fight tooth and nail against any change. Of course, Amazon wasn't happy with any of this. When Sawant was up for re-election in 2019, they put $1.5 million into city council elections, with half a million going to Sawant's opponent specifically, which is pretty unheard of for city council elections. Sawant won anyway. She told The Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, quote, This election was a test lab, end quote. Jeff Bezos does love to experiment, but like any empire, there's resistance, and people are beginning to push back against Jeff Bezos and his company, even people who work for him. More on that fight after this. Jeff Bezos wants you to know a big part of his success is that he got lucky. One of the things that everybody should realize, and that is probably the single most important factor, is that any startup company that turns into a substantial company over the years, never lose track of the fact that there was a lot of luck involved in that. So, you know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs, there are a lot of people who are very smart, very hardworking, very few ever have, you know, the planetary alignment (laughs) that leads to a tiny little company growing into something substantial. Um, So that requires not only a lot of planning, a lot of hard work, a big team of people who are all dedicated, 
but it also requires that not only the planets align, but that you, know, you get a few galaxies in there aligning too. But how much of it really is the galaxies aligning? And how much of it is just capitalism and Bezos's expert maneuvering of it? In Shama Sawant's view, Bezos isn't even that lucky. The system is designed to help people like him. The role he's playing is very much indicative of the nature of the capitalist system itself. And he just happens to be the, the new billionaire on the block. You know, there's nothing, nothing unique in that sense. He exemplifies how the system operates. I just noticed I had a slight mouse problem and needed some mouse traps, So I went on Amazon and bought some. There's a little independent hardware store, likely suffering due to COVID, just two blocks from my apartment. Could have gone there, but I'm a piece of shit, so I didn't. I have Prime and, disgustingly, an Amazon credit card. I bought the traps on Amazon and got 5% cash back. They came in two days. But what did it take to get me those mouse traps? I spoke to Vanessa, one of Jeff Bezos's nearly 800,000 employees. I'm Vanessa. I work at the Amazon delivery station in Chicago. Vanessa works at Amazon's DCH1, a fulfillment center in Chicago, a warehouse. But Vanessa has another job. She's an organizer. Vanessa is uniting with her colleagues to fight for workers' rights. It's why we're not including her last name. DCH1 Amazonians United is a worker organization that focuses on the empowerment of workers and fighting back the oppression of management, fighting back the oppressors, fighting for what we believe is right, fighting for workers' rights and to improve our working conditions. Vanessa knows how working conditions should be. She's not some whiny millennial coming in and just hating the idea of work. Uh, I've worked in the warehouse environment previously, so I know a little bit about working in those type of jobs, per se. I worked at FedEx as well, and when working at Amazon and comparing them to, to FedEx, it's just a completely different world. At FedEx, I feel that it's more, they're more open to employees' concerns, and at Amazon, you're just another number waiting to be replaced by the company. In Amazon's early years, Jeff Bezos experienced the same stress brought on by his own demands of productivity. He and other early employees used to actually pack the boxes themselves. We had no real organization in our distribution centers at all. In fact, we didn't, um, we were packing on our hands and knees on a hard concrete floor. And the, uh, the, the I remember, just to show you how stupid I can be, I was, you know, it, it, my only defense is that it was late. But I, we were packing these things, everybody, everybody in the company, and, the, uh, and I had this brainstorm, and as I said to the person next to me, this packing is killing me. You know, my back hurts. This is killing my knees on this, this hard cement floor. And the person said, yeah, I know what you mean. And I said, you know what we need? This is my brilliant insight. We need knee pads. <laughs> I was very serious. And, and um, this person looked at me like I was the stupidest person they'd ever seen. They're like, I'm working for this person. This is great. And um, said, what we need is packing tables. And I, I looked at this, <laughs> I looked at this person and I thought that was the smartest idea I'd ever heard. That, the next day, we got packing tables, and I think we doubled our productivity. Productivity. 
Yeah, the tables made everyone more comfortable, but Jeff Bezos' takeaway was raw productivity numbers. That focus on productivity, treating humans like machines, is what spurred Vanessa to move. It was last year when it was starting to get really, really hot. It got really hot at DCH1, and Amazon didn't provide enough water. Water stations were broken or empty, and requests for fixing them or providing water bottles were allegedly denied. According to Vanessa, people were passing out. I think that was like a final straw for me to do that just threw me off and said, you know, something needs to be done. In 2019, a DCH1 worker writing under the pseudonym Terry Miller described sweatshop-style conditions in Labor Notes magazine. Quote, crises are frequent. During my second week, a woman passed out from dehydration while working. There's still no air conditioning in the main work area where it gets incredibly hot and humid. Miller goes on. We're ordered to work at such a high pace that we hurt our backs and knees trying to keep up. During my third week, I was unloading a truck with a coworker. We've got to move fast or else they'll yell at us, he told me as he pulled down a tightly packed layer of boxes seven feet high. The wall of boxes came crashing down, and you can't make this stuff up. A box marked with a heavy sticker hit him square in the groin. He keeled over for several seconds, then got back up and limped over to continue moving boxes despite the pain. And that's not all. Quote, the restroom facilities are insufficient and have been constantly out of order, forcing us to use porta potties as if we were working at an outdoor concert eight hours a day. And only after a fire started in June did the managers realize that most of the workers in our warehouse had never had a fire drill, nor had we ever been given instructions on what to do in case of a fire. End quote. It goes beyond Chicago. OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, a federal agency created in 1970 to ensure safe and healthful working conditions for workers nationwide, has investigated individual Amazon fulfillment centers across the country after incident reports ranging from injuries to death. According to the Indianapolis Star, quote, When an Amazon worker was killed by a forklift in a Plainfield, Indiana warehouse in 2017, the state of Indiana's investigator found the company was at fault. The state cited Amazon for four major safety violations and fined it $28,000. But Indianapolis was in the running for Amazon's HQ2. The story continues. As Governor Eric Holcomb sought to lure Amazon's HQ2 to Indiana, state labor officials quietly absolved Amazon of responsibility. After Amazon appealed, they deleted every fine that had been levied and accepted the company's argument that the Amazon worker was to blame. For the most part, Amazon has managed to suppress these stories and keep OSHA records confidential. It gets complicated, but Amazon has said hiding these records is necessary to protect confidential business information. So far, the government has sided with Amazon, so we don't even know the extent of the conditions OSHA may have found at fulfillment centers. These conditions have sparked action and protest from California to New York, where workers like Vanessa are fighting for fair practices and workplace safety. I want all the workers at Amazon to be seen as human beings. I don't want them to be seen or treated as machines. You know, we're human beings. We're not just a little robot that they can just throw away. We're human beings and as workers, we have power. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. As workers, we have power. If Vanessa had the chance to talk to Jeff Bezos one-on-one, -on -one, what would you want to say to him? I would say to him, hey, I'm human too. I'm not a machine, I'm not someone that you can replace. I want you to look at me and my, the rest of my co-workers and peers and every, and every Amazon worker across the world to look at us as human beings and see us as people who are working hard 
to have this company moving, to get those packages to the customer's doors. Take us into consideration every time you go to sleep. So when you get your light bulbs or Don DeLillo novel or bobby pins or whatever from Amazon, what should you remember as you cut open that box and get that little dopamine thrill from getting a package? A lot of people had to put their backbone into getting that package to your, to your doorstep. They had to think whether or not they want to go into work to deal with all of the abuse, all of the oppression, all of the safety concerns that we have as workers, all of the stress, all of the, all of the pain that we go through inside there. There's, 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 there was a lot to go in through that package. For Andres Weigand, the question of humanity hits close to the heart of Amazon's business model. Amazon is known to quantify everything, just like D.E. Shaw was known to measure everything. Does this lead to uh, less humane behavior? Does this lead to uh, the suppression, the exploitation of the workforce? Jeff Bezos didn't invent exploiting the workforce. He didn't invent vertical integration or destroying your competition. No matter how many copies of Adam Smith books he sells, he didn't invent capitalism. What you have to understand is that's the logic of capitalism. And if you bend to that logic, all it means is a race to the bottom in not just in Seattle, but also in South Carolina. It means Mississippi, it means in Mexico, it means in Bangladesh. So it's an international race to the bottom for the billions of workers. Why? Because that's the logic of capitalism. As long as there is another pool of workers that is more desperate, that is poorer than us, more desperate than us to accept workforce without a union, accept lower wages, accept lower living standards, the jobs will move there. So what do we do about it? I think uh, the solution to this is not to say we're going to go back to a world where we're never going to shop online. No, that's not a viable option. I think we have to recognize that these are developments that will help human society, but we need a socialist world where the technologies are harnessed for the good of society. Let's roll back to Stacey Mitchell. We really need to rediscover the fact that, that public policy structures markets. And this is always true, And but for the last 30, 40 years, Public policy has had this sort of built-in favoritism for big corporations, and Bezos has exploited that to build this company. I mean, Amazon is very much a, a product, you could say, of the kinds of policies that the United States has embraced over the last 40 years when it comes to corporations, consolidation. Amazon, like Big Meat, remember that, has consolidated power in a way that makes competition almost impossible. Because Bezos owns the infrastructure and logistics the competition needs. Amazon owns the playing field. And that's not all. There is no viable competition ever on the horizon for Amazon. There is no other company that's going to be able to come along and take them on. The only real threat that Amazon faces is the potential that government will decide to break it up. That the federal government will rediscover its antitrust muscle and say, this is problematic. No company should have this kind of power. This is a company that not only operates in many ways above the law, but increasingly is creating the law, if you will, in terms of how it governs our markets. So that's the thing that Bezos knows. And, and the reason you can tell that he knows this is that he has focused so much of his attention on Washington, D.C. in the last few years. He's bought the Washington Post, um, obviously the, the, the newspaper of record for the, for the nation's leaders. 
He has located, uh, is in the process of locating Amazon's second headquarters in Washington, D.C., with an estimated 25,000 Amazon employees that will be in, in Metro Washington, D.C. That's a lot of soft influence, right? Because you've got all those people who their kids go to school with people who are staff members of Congress or staff this agency. I mean, there's all those sort of social, that social networks and the sort of social influence that comes through those networks and just the presence of a big company like that right in the nation's capital. And then finally, he has purchased and renovated the largest mansion in Washington, D.C. And the and the blueprints for these renovations are just extraordinary. I mean, they show this huge ballroom, um, these, these steps that go up into this ballroom. I mean, you can just, you can picture the lords and ladies, Washington's most powerful people, arriving there for their audience with the king, their audience with Jeff Bezos. Uh, and he's renovated this mansion for that kind of social interaction and that kind of influence and power. And I think that that should alarm us greatly. I think as a country that is committed to the idea that power needs to be decentralized, that there needs to be checks and balances across everything, uh, you know, that the, the founders chose Washington, D.C. And, and not New York, in part because they wanted to keep the capital away from the center of financial power. Well, Amazon, you know, Bezos is in the process of undoing that decision. I, I think all of those things should greatly alarm us. I want to get back to Jeff Bezos, the wealthiest man in the world, the guy in charge of one of the most powerful companies in the world. Is Bezos somebody we can trust? I admire Jeff for his integrity. He just does what he says, and he says what he does. I asked Dr. Weigand for a story that really exemplifies who Bezos is, and he pointed me to the National Enquirer. I just so saw Jeff shine through that. It's just, you know, hey, life is too short to try to make up stories. The National Enquirer reached out to Bezos and told him that they had acquired sexts and nude images which exposed an extramarital affair as well as Bezos himself. After a brief back and forth with the Enquirer's publisher, Bezos went public and addressed the incident in a letter. He wrote, of course I don't want personal photos published, but I also won't participate in their well-known practice of blackmail, political favors, political attacks, and corruption. I prefer to stand up, roll this log over, and see what crawls out. End quote. Basically, release my dick pics, cowards. Oh, that's him. That's totally him. Yeah, that's totally him. I think the, the honesty, the directness, yeah. But what, really, does a story about dick pics reveal? I've worked with Angela Merkel. And I also completely trust Angela Merkel. And you know, the interesting thing is that at the end of the day, those extremely powerful people are actually super charming as well. They're just wonderful human beings if you let them be that way. If you end up on the wrong side, then I think in both cases, uh, it can be quite unpleasant. Who's to say which side is the wrong side? Is Vanessa on the wrong side? Shama Somant? Small business owners nationwide? Hundreds of diapers.com employees? Walmart? I want to read you a quote on consumerism. What consumerism really is, at its worst, is getting people to buy things that don't actually improve their lives. The one thing that offends me the most is when I walk by a bank and see ads trying to convince people to take out second mortgages on their home so they can go on vacation. 
that's approaching evil, end quote. That wasn't Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders. That's Jeff Bezos in 1999. The same Jeff Bezos who brought about free shipping on purchases over $25 and seized on the natural human predilection towards buying things we don't need that have no impact on our everyday lives other than taking up a spot on our coffee table. Nevertheless, Bezos has created an exquisite machine, a data-driven monster that wields monopolistic power over everything and every thing. It made him the wealthiest man in the world and likely humanity's first trillionaire. Great job, Jeff. You won capitalism. But the wealth and power Bezos has amassed has come at a tremendous cost to workers, to businesses, to competitive markets, to the health of the American economy. So much of this show is about the danger of consolidated power. Amazon has amassed a consolidated power that must be addressed. And it's in the hands of Jeff Bezos. But what about Jeff Bezos? Is he, like Andreas Wigan believes, a man of integrity? Or does his focus on productivity and profit blind him to the brutality of his business and the world around him? Whomever Jeff Bezos is, we're at his mercy anyway. And that's the problem with plutocracy and of the system that enables a company like Amazon to thrive. In our last few episodes, from Mark Zuckerberg to Big Meat to Jeff Bezos, we've talked about the failures of the world we live in. On the next episode, we're going to introduce you to some of the people fighting back against a world that values some lives more than others. On the next episode of Who Is, Black Lives Matter. A sincere thank you to our guests, Vanessa, an Amazon worker and organizer with DCH1 Amazonians United in Chicago. Stacy Mitchell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Shama Sawant, a Seattle City Councilwoman who has represented Seattle's District 3 since 2014. Dr. Andreas Weigand, a data scientist who previously served as Amazon's chief scientist. He's the author of the book, Data for the People. Who Is is a podcast from now this. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Kinsey Clark is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hedekuder. And now this, Tina Ixaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to PJ Evans, Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Special thanks to William Stoles. Who Is, the podcast, season two, new episodes out every Tuesday. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe and tell all your friends.